0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler show. My name is Dana and I am pleased to welcome back producer, writer, director Peter Winther. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Well, we're uh, we're going to be continuing the conversation about this uh, really incredible journey that you've been on. When we left off, you had just finished directing your first feature, which was The Librarian for 2 in 2004. So, I guess naturally the next question is what was next for you? What was the next project? Was it producing? Was it directing? What did you get into next?
1: Well, I was going to direct. I mean, it was, it was all about directing at that point in time. It was a, it was a different, it was a weird time because, uh, it was right about then, like nine 11 was going down. And as we kind of referenced a little bit earlier, the last time we called and, uh, a lot of the dynamics of the business was changing, but, uh, uh so but i was all about directing i actually was going to direct the second librarian because the first one did so well but then i met this guy it was actually at the espy awards his name was uh, eric weinmeyer and he was the first and only guy still I, I imagine still to this day first blind person that ever uh summited mount everest and he was uh you know, given uh, the sportsman of the year, he was on the cover of Time Magazine. And and, uh, and that, at the ESPY Awards, he, he won, you know, whatever that big award is. And he was very inspiring person, <laughs> especially to me, because I lost vision in one of my eyes when I was like six years old. So this guy was kind of a, a bit of a hero to me because of just all the stuff he's accomplished. And he's since summited like, He's all, he summited all seven of the great uh, highest summits in, on each continent, and he's also gone on to help a lot of uh, you know wounded veterans uh, do similar climbs uh, to uh, you know show that they can still do all that stuff that they've done before. They just have to do it in a slightly different way. So so he was he he gave me a call. I was actually about a month out from doing Librarian Two, and they were doing a TV a movie about his journey up Everest and uh and it was just it was conflicting uh with the librarian but I just felt as a storyteller that uh as much as I loved the librarian and all that that this was a story I had to tell so so I ended up uh doing that it was called it was for A&E and it was like really right as A&E was starting to kind of become a force it was one of their first original content uh things and so we ended up uh uh, doing that film and uh, Peter Facinelli starred in it and he and I have become uh, we're still best friends because of that project It was a lot of heart went into that movie
0: now the film is called touch the top of the world yeah. and you said like you said you mentioned Peter Facinelli stars in it. and when I had Peter on the show a couple months ago he talked about I asked him what was one of the most uh, challenging roles he ever had to prepare for and he cited this one And he said challenging in a good way, but this was something that was really, really different and really out of his wheelhouse. So I have a couple questions for you about this one. Was Eric kind of an onset advisor? Like, what what did he bring and what did he sort of teach you or or explain to you about, uh, you know, how he was able to accomplish this?
1: I mean, he taught me so much, that guy. Uh, He uh, I went out. He lives in Colorado um, and I went out before I did the, the film. I went out to see him. And, uh, this was before, uh, Faccinelli was on board just to kind of get to know him a little bit. And what he, he did, he took me climbing. And, uh, so it was like literally the blind leading the blind, <laughs> the blind leading the half blind. But, uh, he, he took me climbing with some of his buddies. We went up, uh, climbing up this ice waterfall thing, which, you know, and he's leading, you know, so you're like, you have to take these ice picks and you're supposed to, hit the ice pick and where the blue ice is because that's the deepest ice because if you hit, if you put the pick into the shallow ice, the whole thing could shatter and we all basically die or get like oh. seriously injured, right? And he's leading, like he's going up the thing and then he has another guy below belaying me and uh, and he does it by sonar like he taps the ice and he can hear where it's, where it's thickest and then with no hesitation just you know hammers that next pick in you know what i mean and uh so he taught me a lot about trust you know what i mean yeah. and uh and courage and all that just in that one climb and uh and so and then i i you after that i ended up i rewrote a lot of script after uh, david titcher wrote uh, no no it wasn't david titcher i was uh who wrote just someone else had written the first draft of the script but it was very kind of a by the numbers uh, kind of script so, I don't know, I just felt I could go a little bit more nonlinear with it and make it a little bit more emotional. And, and it was also only about the climbing, uh, which I felt was not as compelling. But after meeting him and meeting his wife uh, and his kids and all that stuff, there was just there was a, better, uh, a bigger story to tell. And so I went back and rewrote that, and they, everybody liked it, and then we started climbing process. But Eric was on set uh, a lot. And in fact, after we, uh, did all the casting, Eric and his team of, uh, climbers, they, uh, and I went with them cause it was just fun. We all, we, we went on a, a climbing expedition in, in prep. It was kind of like our rehearsal mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and Peter, he would wear, cause what I didn't want to do and he didn't want to do uh, as a semi blind person Uh, and I know a lot of obviously blind people, what they always hate is when somebody just puts on sunglasses and does the Stevie wonder thing, you know, (laughs) like where they're moving their head around and that's just not how blind people are. Like when blind people talk to you, like it it feels like they're looking at you because they, they're, they're echo, they have echolocation uh, abilities, you know, they're not daredevil, but they're, but they're pretty, but they're pretty close, you know? So they, it feels like they're looking at you because they're following the sound, right? So it's never like they're staring off into space, unless they're surrounded by a group of people or something. But so Eric, uh, what Peter decided to do is he, we had these uh, s- uh, special contacts made. So he would put those in his eyes. So it would still look like his eyes. But he could maybe see like 5% out of there. Okay. You know? And he just wore those all the time. And uh, so so when we went on this rehearsal climbing, he was like that. and uh, And then all the other actors – we kind of taught by Eric's uh, climbing team how they, you know, how they would help him climb, and so they would have to help him. So they basically everyone was in character, uh, and we we did the, this climb all in character so that they could so, so they could do it like that. So that they really kind of built up that camaraderie like that. So yeah, it was challenging for Peter because he uh, a lot of actors would would uh, would take those out. Uh, and certain times when they didn't have to wear it. But Peter, uh, when we were on set, he wasn't like – he wasn't so uh, so into it. That, like we were running around Calgary, like and he's he's a blind man. He didn't do that. But uh, but he, like when we were even out climbing the these peaks up in Banff, uh, he would have those things in. So uh, much to our stunt coordinator chagrin. But, mm. <laughs> but he was like, tell him to take those things out. And I'm like, well, I'll – I'm not because he's doing it really well. Let's just rope him in and make sure he's safe, you know? And uh, so th- thank God for like, you know, digital technology because uh, everybody was, we were, we were walking on some knife edge precipices, but everybody was safetied in. And then we just digitized, we uh, erased those cables later, but so it looks more dangerous, but it wasn't dangerous. Well, I mean, there's always a little bit of danger, but it wasn't too dangerous.
0: Let me, I was going to ask you about the, you know, the lo- locations for the film, you know, where, where everything was, uh, was filmed at.
1: Well, we shot, we we were based in Calgary. And uh, so we did a a lot in and around the city of Calgary. And then, uh, and then we went, it's about two hours north of Calgary is this uh, place called Banff, which is the Canadian Rockies. And it's stunningly gorgeous. And uh, the elevation is high. It's not as high as Everest, obviously, that's 30,000 feet. But um, you do, you know, it's like 15,000, something like that. And uh, so you get above the tree line, right? So And that's important because Everest, there's no trees. So so we were able to shoot uh, all the medium wides and close ups, you know, there, you know, Uh, because when Eric uh, Weimar, when he actually summited Everest, they had a documentary crew there and they shot in high def. And uh, so unlike a lot of like these old like, uh, you know, before the digital era. You'd always cut to stock footage of people climbing the actual mountain. There was always different quality of film and like all that kind of stuff. So for us, like the big super wide shots where you obviously know it's Everest, that's real footage of Eric and his guys doing it. And the documentary filmmaker, who's a a terrific documentary filmmaker, uh, he shot that stuff. So, so I would use that as our wide shots and then you know everyone we'd have everyone wearing the same clothes that the, that they were wearing in those shots and then we would do all the, the the you know that ma- mainly just for the summit stuff because obviously we couldn't fake that you know There was no way i mean we did fake when they get to the summit like the very tip of the summit, because that's just like you know the summit of everest is just like it's this little area you know and then we kind of uh green screened that part so we could have the actors hitting the summit and, and doing all that. But uh, for all the big climbing stuff, that was real footage of Eric and his guys. And then all the rest of the climb we did in Banff, you know, before they got over the in the dead zone, which is twenty five thousand feet.
0: Now, was this a little bit like, as you're filming up in up in Banff, and I'm familiar with the area being a Canadian, and I've, this setting, this on location, did it present any? challenges for you that were, were new to you? Because I remember we were talking about last episode, we we're talking about the, the, the Patriot and, you know, the, the cotton sticks and these little little challenges like that. But I mean you're shooting on location, high elevation. I mean, this is was this something that was a little bit new to you as far as this type of shooting location, or had you done something that was sort of prepared you for this?
1: No, I never I had never shot like at that high elevation at that point in time. Uh, and in those kind of uh, snow conditions where everything. and because and also, as you know, alberta we we were shooting in like December and January in Alberta, sure. so it was freezing cold. and uh, so it was uh, uh, nothing was faked on that side of things. Uh, so you know you have to i the only thing that was that was similar to it, even though the temperatures are the exact opposite was Stargate. Because you had to instead of snow it was just sand, you know, but it was a similar vibe and a similar organizational technique in that uh, of there was a lot to do of how to move the crew around you know efficiently you know and safely, you know and uh, so uh, so it was uh, so I, I took some lessons from that, uh, believe it or not but but I'd never been in, the, in that kind of cold like that and uh so that's uh that was tough, but we did all the. I think I said in the last podcast one of the things that I like to do is is when you're shooting something you always shoot your hardest most difficult stuff first. Yeah. which a lot of people don't do but uh cuz you're the most prepared. So we did all the highest high ele- elevation stuff right off the top, you know, because it's everyone's really prepared, uh, everyone's ready for it and everyone's got a lot of energy still. And you just go for it and you have that, you know, those weeks before where you can really train. Like we said, we, we, in the rehearsals, we did a lot of climbing with the actors. So while that's, that was still fresh in their minds, uh, we used, uh, we used that to the fullest. And then we, you know, and then we kind of, so we started up in Banth and then we kind of moved our way back to Calgary and ended back there with doing most of the dramatic stuff, okay. uh, yeah so yeah but it was it was it was definitely uh difficult and uh and <laughs> maneuvering facinelli around was uh amusing, but we had Eric up there too uh with us at that point so but yeah, it was most of the cold and just trudging through the snow, and at the end of the day you're just exhausted, you know because you' never really sit down, you know, so I mean I never really sit down when I'm directing or producing to be honest uh uh, so you know so you're at the end of the day you're always exhausted but this days in particular you're way more exhausted because you you got all that garb on and then you're trudging through the snow and you know we had to make sure everyone could hear each other on the radio and stuff like that so we had like a radio mics inside the you know kind of like in football where you could call in the plays we could do that with the actors it's either snow helmets or if they had a toque on they'd throw it in there so i could talk to them uh, from afar because I couldn't be too close to them because we were trying to sell the isolation of where they were.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, the question I had, uh, you know, a question popped up when I was, I went back and listened to our last conversation and this question will certainly apply to this film uh, along with the librarian. I was curious when you're doing something that is a uh, purposely for television, are you up against a hard runtime as far as how long this film has to be? Because you, you mentioned that you sort of did a, a rework of the script and rewrote you know, and added new uh, new scenes and new storyline threads. But are you constantly thinking about, like, this has to be exactly 90 minutes? And what challenges present themselves when you're, if you're up against a hard runtime?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of challenges there. On this one, yeah, this one was really tough because I did add, uh, I added more than I took away, you know, and I felt uh, in the script. And I felt that I would figure it out later in the editing room, but I'm just going to shoot it and uh and then we can decide which way we want to go that was uh in tv that's if you don't have final cut that's never a good thing you know uh to be honest uh you think it is but it's not because uh nine times out of ten they're going to pick something whether they're right or wrong you know is up to uh, question but you know you'll, they're probably going to pick stuff that they want to use that you don't you know because it's just a general rule in the and whether it's a a studio executive, whether you're a film or TV, they want to get to the story as quick as they can, you know? And, uh, and so they, they tend to, they tend to eliminate a lot of setup, you know, uh, which for me is where most of the heart is and where some of the stuff works. You're not always right. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes you're right. But that's, it's just kind of a constant battle that, and that's not just me. That's like, I, almost every filmmaker i know that's <laughs> the same thing and uh, so and and it's even it, it was even happening in like some movies like stargate and stuff where that kind of happened to us so and if the movie performed still good then everyone says they were right but it could have been better <laughs> but you'll never know so so yeah i, I would say in in especially in Spectre, in, net, in network tv i would i would get every you know now what i do is i just try to get everybody on board with the script and make the script as tight as you can, and then shoot that. You know, and uh, and hopefully then you don't have those battles later. And you do shoot, you shoot to time with like obviously a little bit of fat, but not too much fat. But I had a lot of fat on this one because I I knew I could I knew I could do it in the time that I had. Uh, so I figured I would do it like that. So the well, I'm very proud of that uh, of that film still uh, a lot because of the experience I had. Uh, there was definitely stuff uh, that was left on the, you know, the editing floor that I wish was in there, you
0: know, for sure. And is none of that, like, I mean, I just think now, I'm I'm, I'm we're in 2020, this is going back 14 years when this film was released, yeah. but, you know, is there ever thoughts of, you know, well, well, we've got 90 minutes for the television premiere, but if we put this on DVD, we can include more. Does those conversations ever happen?
1: Uh, yeah, they do, they do. Uh, it didn't on that one, because uh, also there was like a, a big change of regime, right? After we finished that, shooting that film, there was a, a change in regime at a uh, and It wasn't as, uh, yeah, we, I didn't have the relationship with those people. You know, those weren't the people that uh, that wa- that greenlit that project or anything. They did like the project though, they, and they were they were actually pretty good. They were good people, but it was there was no talk of anything else because you know when a new regime comes in, they have their own uh, project and their own stamp that they want to do. You know, so uh, so there was. There was no talk on that one. Eric at one point did because Eric Eric Weimar still uh, he goes around and does a lot of inspirational talks and and then takes a lot of these like wounded veterans as I said on these things and he'll go and he'll show this film uh, still fourteen years later and uh, and and people watch the film and then he will and then he does his talk after that. So that's kind of what's out there, that thing. And But there's also – there's a documentary of the climb and uh, of all that. So there's – you know, it's, it's – you know, it's – that one's done. And uh, at the time, my heart was broken a little bit, but the project was very well received. So – it could have been right. It could have been wrong. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> you know I mean, I just would have liked to try it. That's all.
0: One more question, just on the technical side of things. In two thousand and six, we're still just on the cusp of high definition, as far as being readily available in most homes. Aspect ratio. When you're filming this, what yeah. what what aspect ratio are you shooting? Are you shooting? You know, the stand. I mean, what they do today. Are you doing the? you know, the, the the classic television aspect ratio?
1: Well, I framed everything kind of for like, an. I didn't shoot anamorphic, but I shot it like I was shooting anamorphic. I, they wouldn't let me shoot it anamorphic because uh, of the TV situation. Because also back then people didn't have the TVs. You can't buy a 75-inch TV for $300 like yeah. you can now. You know what I mean? So it was one of those things that's totally changed. It used to be in TV, even when I did that first librarian, like, They weren't too into the big wide shots, you know, because they're like, yeah, have a couple of those just to sell it. But like that's, uh, you know, people are going to be watching this while they're folding their laundry and they have a smaller screen and all that kind of stuff. So it's more about the close ups and things like that. That's what they were really selling and how they would want you to cut it. You know, where me coming from movies, it was like, you know, you just cut appropriately. Like if it's something that's a landscape shot, milk it. You know what I mean? If it's a tight scene, you you do it tight. So uh but that's different now so uh but that was uh certainly something you had to think of that you do, you wouldn't spend as much time as you would in the film on these big wide shots you'd uh you'd spend more time on on the other stuff but uh so we shot i think we we framed it like 16:9 you know like on the monitor Because I think we saw, like, a Sony something. I can't remember. It was not the 900, whatever their next one after the 900 was. Or do we shoot on the Sony Genesis? I got. I can't remember. But um, so we kind of framed it for 69, but always we put a little tape on the monitor, like, where the actual TV framing would be, too, just so we knew uh, that I wasn't uh, boning myself when they, like, did the pan and scan. Yeah.
0: Now you mentioned yeah. that the, the it was well received. So what happens next? What's what's next for you? Oh, and by the way, listeners, I want to encourage you touch the top of the world available. You can get it on Amazon. I that's how I was able to watch it. Definitely encourage everyone to check that out. It's it's a really really great film and really inspiring. So you've you've done this now. You've done you've done the two films. This is 2006 when this is released what uh you know what's next
1: well i mean the thing was at that time a and e like nobody was really watching any that much you know what i mean so it's uh it got really well received but i, I don't know how I, I don't even know what the ratings were on that thing but and it, but it's gotten really well received i can only tell from my residual checks i still get residual checks from that <laughs> one so that's always a good sign so but then you know i had this long relationship with uh dean devlin obviously from the past and uh at that point in time, uh, Ron Emmerich and Dean Devon had kind of separated their uh, ways creatively, those still remaining uh, very good friends. So he was doing a TV show uh, called uh, Leverage. So I went and did a bunch of episodes there uh, for a while. God, I can't remember. it so long ago. Like, um, And so that was fun. I had never done episodic TV before, but it, I just found it wasn't really uh, for me because it's the show's a really good show, but uh, it just uh, is one of those shows. It's the same show every week, you know? It's like a heist a week. So, for a director on that type of show, for me, there just wasn't a lot in there for me, just because, to be honest, like, if the if the if the DGA wasn't around, like they probably wouldn't even hire a director. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's one of those shows because it's a machine, you know, and uh, and it should be a machine. They're doing all the right things there because uh, it's a case a week, so the you know, you come in, like, you, you basically show up, you get in a van, they show you this, the locations where you're going to shoot at, you know? They call it a scout, but it's really just them showing you where you're going to shoot. And uh, so what you basically can do as a director on those type of shows, these episodics where it's like, you know, like, the leverages, the CSIs, or all that, where it's like, it kind of runs itself and the showrunners are there. And the DPs, like, kind of really know, and the actors know, everyone knows more than you. You're more... The only one you really get to direct is like the guest stars, you know, because you're both in the dark, you know, really. So you just find a way they give you a style sheet, like here's the types of shots you need to shoot, you know, things like that. So it's for me, uh, I mean, they pay you well for it. So like, so you can't really complain, but I did anyway. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So I wasn't, I just wasn't a fan of that. I'd like to be, I mean, for everyone else, but the director, it's great. Like for the actors. You can dive deeper into a character over a period of years, you know. So you're going to explore every aspect of that. Uh, for the producers and writers, there's a lot of different stories you can tell. So for all those people, it's it's a it's great, you know. Uh, and they obviously get paid really well too. Uh, but for the director, you're, when you're coming in as a guest star, it's like, uh, you know, it's just not that fulfilling. So yeah. so for me, I just uh, I felt. That wasn't the way to go. And and also at that time, I didn't really want to uh, go back and work uh, with Roland anymore at that point in time. I just kind of was looking to find – I was looking to try to find my own way, you know, uh, and break away a little bit from those guys as much as I care and love for them still to this day.
0: Well, I, yeah. wanted, to, I wanted to just touch on something you mentioned here. Talking about the episodic television because this is something I don't don't know or don't fully understand. A showrunner, I would think, typically on a, on a feature film, the director is calling the shots, is is overseeing the entire thing. What does the showrunner do versus you know a director on episodic television? Well, the
1: showrunner usually uh, is the one that also created the the concept in the first place, so. Uh, in this case, it was, it was John Rogers was the writers, great guy, and, and uh, Chris Downey uh, were the kind of co-showrunners, uh, both uh, wonderful people. And then, but Dean was really, uh, Dean Downey was really the showrunner over them. Like, they kind of ran it, but Dean, like, had the final authority, right? But what they do is they uh, they develop, they get a writer's room together, and they, they hire a bunch of writers, and they develop the scripts for that season, and, and probably have, like, a three to five season broken out ahead of time. I know this now because I'm actually, uh, developing, a, a, a well, we've set up a TV show to actually with Roland Emmerich right now. So we're in that process now, but so they do all that stuff and then they're creatively in charge. So they, they hire the directors they want to hire. And basically you're brought in to shoot the footage for them. And whoever wrote was the principal writer on that episode, that writer, whether it's one of the two showrunners or, or one of the other writers, they'll be on set with you to make sure you're hitting all the story points, you know, and, and that they can be there because, again, the actors are going to know more about their characters than you. So you have to kind of surrender yourself to that and really just try to put them in a good situation for them to do their stuff. So that's really what you're doing. and then and, and you try to find opportunities to elevate what's happening. Probably the most you could do on the, on those kind of shows where, you know, it's it's like they say, like, uh, you know, when you go see a movie, it's like a one night stand, you know, because <laughs> you're going for that one time and you want it to be amazing. Uh, where a TV show, especially shows like that, where it's an episodic show, where it's the same thing every. Same same show every week, basically. It's a relationship because that's what people want. They're like, I want to see a heist this week, and so which who are they going to rob this week? You know, and uh, and uh, so that's you know, it's much much more of a relationship. So. They don't want too much change, right? They want to do the same thing every week because that's what the the model is, you know, and that's what their audience wants. And uh, so you're just looking to elevate it like by, you know, maybe added like 10 percent onto it or something, you know. And uh, so that's kind of what it is. So they're the ones making sure you're doing that and you're not going too crazy or if you have an idea, you have to run it by them to make sure it's uh that it fits the style of the show and things like that. So that's kind of what, what they do.
0: Okay. Just as you mentioned, you decided, you know, this is not, this is not for you. Although, you know, you said it was a good experience, uh, but it's not what you want to do. So you, you've taken, you know, that experience and what you parlay that into next.
1: Yeah. So I actually, that's a good question. What do I do next? I did not know. Like I was really, I was like, okay, I don't want to do episodic TV. And, uh, and getting, like, all the films that I had that I wanted to do were very expensive films, you know, that uh, that uh, people weren't doing. Because I mean, at that point in time, like, The Librarian was an expensive, was uh, like an eight or nine million dollar budget, which was like the lowest budget I'd ever worked on, you know. And uh, uh, since I, you know, since I'd started working with Roland. And uh, so... I was like, wow, this is going to be tight. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Now I'm like $8 million budget. That's huge. You know what I mean? Because it's just the, again, uh, yeah. the times change and the technology change. So budgets on movies just go way down, yeah. you know, uh, just because you can do so much more of a lot less because of the cameras. And, and now investors know that. So... You know they do it, and so only way, only you only get so they really try to whittle you down budget wise way more than before they did before, but now even more so, right? So I was kind of like looking around uh, for something, and the, the, I have a, a a very good friend, uh, an actress named Felicia Day, and Felicia, she was like really the person ahead of the curve on the whole uh, kind of web series thing. She had done a web series mainly because she just wanted to get a she couldn't get a job, you know. And, uh, even as talent, you know, cause there's so much competition out there for work and, uh, she's a really talented actress. And so she created her own web series based on one of her passions, which was video gaming. You know, she, she played a lot of world of Warcraft, you know? And, uh, so she made a, uh, she made a web series about a bunch of uh, a, a group of people that were in a guild which is like a group of people that join up on Warcraft for anybody who doesn't know uh, and they join forces and then you go on missions together online to, to fight to fight the evil sorcerer or take out some orcs or whatever the hell it is and uh, but you only you talk online you know and you don't uh, you don't you only know each other through your avatar. You know, so one guy could be like a eight foot tall warlock, and, you know, she was like an elven, like, you know, thief, whatever it is, but you only see each other's avatars on the game. So she made this thing called, uh, it was called The Guild, and it was based about, you know, what if people who are in a guild together suddenly started to meet each other in real life? And <laughs> <Right. laughs> what would it be? And uh, so it was a really funny idea, and she shot it all in our house the first season like they did it for nothing where it was basically just shots of people with headsets on looking at a monitor and then they cut to a monitor with some really bad graphics every once in a while and then at the end of the season one of the guys comes to her house opens up the door and that eight foot tall warlock is like a five foot two indian guy you know <laughs> and like and they but they were getting romantic online and then they meet each other right so um so it took off and they did like five seasons of that and I always remember because we went down to Comic Con one year for leverage, right? And we were in Hall H and uh, which is the big hall at Comic Con which fit like pe- three hundred people three thousand people. And I saw hadn't seen Felicia for a while and she was in the green room and I was like, Hey, what are you doing? She was we all saying, Oh yeah, we do this little web series, we're coming on after you guys, you know? And so we reconnected there. So we went out there, we had our whole cast of leverage and you know it was like three quarters full, so it was like 2,000 people. That's not bad because also, like, why is leverage at Comic Con anyway? But I guess everyone goes to Comic Con now, right? And uh, like a far cry from when we first went down there was Stargate. Then, like, Felicia and her crew, along with like Will Wheaton, was there too with them. They went up on stage, and there was like a line outside the door, like, it was overflowing, man. It was like 3,000, and then some. And I always remember, like, uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the people on lovers, like, wait, what the hell? And they got pissed <laughs> at the publicist, like, why aren't we getting more people? And I was like, it's not the publicist's fault, man. Like, like she's from these people. Like, she, like, you know, she's one of them. You know what I mean? Like, and so she's like the success story. And also, the show is really good. You know, Microsoft ended up picking it up, and they gave them a little bit more money, but not much. So anyways Felicia and I have a, a deep love for a uh, sci-fi and fantasy fiction you know so whenever we would get together we would talk about different uh novels that we think we should make in the movies and or video games and stuff and mm-hmm. and and uh we had this love for this game Dragon Age and Felicia because of her high profile in that world like she gets free games all the time they just keep sending her games and uh so she she turned me on to Dragon Age and and I love that game still to this day it's a great game so I played a lot and then she she told me hey listen I don't know if you would do anything like this I think it was Electronic Arts they uh, I think it was Electronic Arts I think it's up but uh, anyways the company that's doing the video game they asked me if I would do like a web series of Dragon Age you know and I wrote a script about it and then they're gonna base on the next uh, edition of dragon age they're gonna base it's like an origin story for her character and then uh, that character is gonna be was gonna be in the next version of the game right so they just so it was more of a marketing thing but so it wasn't hardly any money man like we did it it was like i think we had four hundred thousand dollars right it just seemed like a fun challenge you know and uh so and felicia i just love her to death and so so we went, we went for it, man. And uh, I got John Bartley to be my DP, and John is like a legend in TV. Like he was the DP on the X Files, he created that whole look, and and he's you know he's just you can look him up, and like he did Bates Motel, and which was a great show. I mean, he's done so many great shows, but X Files was like this first kind of big thing, and then he's just like sought after after that. And he thought it would be like a hoot to try as well. So so we did it, and like you know was like we had 400,000 bucks so you can only do so much uh with it but uh we tried our best and we didn't we had like a week to shoot it all so there was a lot of lessons learned but uh, we had all good actors you know the actors were all pretty good and and we had like Doug Jones was in it who's like the one of the you know most famous uh, prosthetic actors in the world so he did a favor for us Doug Jones is now, he plays uh, uh, that character on Star Trek Discovery, but he's been in every Del Toro movie where he was like he was the amphibian man in Hellboy, uh, the Silver Surfer, you know who he is.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And one of the nicest human beings alive. So it was just a fun shoot. We had a really good time on it, and a lot of the actors have gone on uh, to do other stuff. And uh, so, uh, and then we, yeah, we took it to Comic Con and had a gigantic room again. We just showed the teaser and people went nuts because like basically anything felicia does because she's such a well she's so talented and then she's just such a likable person that you just want to be on her side like like, that no one's like ripping her down anytime you know and uh so so it did really well for everybody. everybody was very happy with it i look at it and i'm like but uh some moments like the acting i'm very happy about the, the visual effects and and we didn't have much time for the fight scenes so you try to you just try to make them quick and violent you know mm-hmm. and uh, and just propel the story along but but it was a great lesson and it also kind of started to get me into into the thinking that i that maybe i do like the more and then the independent film you have no financial freedom whatsoever, but you do have a lot of creative freedom. And uh, and it's the opposite with the studio world. And that probably was my first taste of that. Where even though it was basically a big commercial, but uh but it was we, we, we had a we had a free hand. Like we didn't there was none nobody from the video game company was on set or anything like that. So so yeah, so it was a really fun experience, you know. Were you- and I'm still looking for something to do with Fleesha again. We we've come close a couple times, but but we'll find something
0: soon. Were you? Um, were there any restrictions placed on you as far as the level of violence or anything gratuitous, or were you just given free reign to do yeah, whatever you want? Yeah, we had
1: no. We had to. We had to. We had to kind of keep it uh, pretty G-rated, to be honest. Like, you know, PG-rated. We couldn't go R. We couldn't go R. So, and also the game isn't really like that. Uh, the game itself, like there is definitely some violence in there, but it's, it's not gratuitous. So, I mean, it's a little bit more now, uh, but it wasn't at the time.
0: So, okay. And then, so this web series, where does it premiere? Like what, this is all, this is all new to you. So you, you're, you're letting people know I've, I've done this web series. You can watch it where at the time.
1: I mean, it was just YouTube, really. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and then on the, the site, the, the game, the, the company uh, video game site, you know, was that's it. And um, so you could just watch it on YouTube and then you're just looking for hits and clicks. I, I mean, I didn't like I basically when I'm done with a film, like when I, I shoot it i kind of i'm like i've seen it so many times by the time it's done right because i'm editing and scoring and all that kind of stuff that you're you're i'm just done with it there's nothing more i can do so i don't really go i don't when i direct when i produce it's different but when i direct i just walk away from it like i just done so it doesn't really matter like if people like it they like it great you know uh if they don't like it it doesn't uh, i mean it's not as good but i've already moved on you know what i mean so so i don't really felicia would give me updates on how many hits and all that kind of stuff and she would read every comment and i'm like i'm not gonna read any comments whatsoever (laughs) you know what i mean because like what does that do for you it doesn't whether even if it's great comments that's dangerous too because then like you're gonna start believe your hype if it's bad comments then you're gonna like go drink yourself and into oblivion (laughs) or something so it's like i don't find any i don't find any uh I just don't find anything uh, positive there for me one way or the other. So, you know, like I like to hear from afar, like, you know, on the on the premiere of a movie, I'll sit in the room uh, for a little bit, you know, like maybe at the beginning, because there's always something in the beginning that's always a touchstone. Like if they react to that, everything else is going to work, you know. And then after that, I usually leave because it's uh, it's just too stressful, you know. So uh, I'd rather just, you know go have a nice meal and let everyone tell me later how it went, you know? Yeah. So,
0: yeah. My, uh, yeah, I have a friend, uh, Phil Juano, he's a director and, uh, he told oh, yeah. he told yeah, me yeah. the exact same, basically the exact same thing you just said. Like we were talking about state of grace and a couple of his other films. And he's like, yeah, I, it's sometimes we were doing this whole episode on it and he's like, yeah, it's. Kind of hard for me to remember. I haven't seen the movie since 1990, and I'm like, well, that's when it came yeah. out. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah exactly. he, he so told me the exact same thing. So it's it's I, I see it's a common practice with 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 directors. I think that's awesome. <laughs> so
1: yeah, because you, you're in it so much, like on a on a like microscopic level, like every little inch, every little frame, you know it backwards and forwards. So by the time you're done with it, you like don't, just don't want to see it again. And uh, as much as you love it. But as a producer, it's totally different as a producer. Like I'll sit in the room cause you're not, even though you're emotionally invested in it, you'll never be as emotionally invested as a director. It's just impossible. Right. And, uh, so because no one's ever going to say the movie sucks like oh that movie was poorly produced you know what right. i mean <laughs> no one's ever going <laughs> to say that you know what i mean they're going to say that director sucks or maybe the screenwriter you know or the actors those, those are the three people that will get blamed but the producer you're pretty safe you know and uh so so you can be in the room and watch the film and and then also there's you there's maybe ways you can fix things still and uh even if it's you know who knows or but in the but in the premiere, you definitely want to know and you want to track it all. And like I definitely read more because it's, it's not I don't take it as a personal affront if somebody doesn't like it or, or if somebody loves it. I don't take it like I didn't do it. I mean, I produced it, but the director did it and the actors did it the writer wrote it like they're the ones that that created it. Uh, as a producer, you you provide an environment for all those people to, to, to succeed in. That's what you try to do.
0: So with Dragon Age Redemption, you mentioned that, you know, this is sort of gives you that first taste of the creative freedom that you can have with doing the independent. This is 2011 when this series debuts, and this is right when we're getting at the the beginning stages of Netflix streaming service and, and the streaming services. So as a producer, as a director what is the 2010s like what are you sort of starting to foresee around that time and then what do you get into next
1: well at that time i think 2010 netflix was still like delivering dvds to the house right yeah, so yeah. really it was i i honestly i did not foresee the streaming like how it is now right i did not i didn't see that i thought like you there would be you know some cool indie stuff that could come out on youtube and and things like that i didn't foresee uh I still thought like it's going to be traditional TV and, and then, uh, movies and then there'd be YouTube and maybe some offshoot, some competition to YouTube would open up, but it would still, it would still be that because again, having like a home theater experience was expensive yeah. at that point in time, you know? And I didn't, I'm a creative person. I'm not like a futurist or a business person really, except when I have to be and. the, uh, so I wasn't I wasn't spending a lot of time looking at that like uh, like because if you really analyzed it like it, you would think oh yeah that kind of would make sense you know that eventually all this stuff would get cheaper and cheaper so for me I was and also I still was uh, you know wanted to make movies more than TV because again in 2010 2011 there was no I mean those the great TV shows. I might be wrong, but I, I don't think like shows like True Detective or Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or anything had really started yet. Like there was like a year or two away from like just great T V shows. Like where, where now almost everybody says like pretty much the best stuff the best stories are being told on TV now, which certainly was not the case, you know, then. And uh so and and you know, the idea of like uh, like, uh, I'm surprised, by the way, YouTube ha- isn't bigger than it was because they were there first, you know. Yeah. But uh, how YouTube isn't Netflix, <clears throat> I don't know, you know. But uh, but it's, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. you just would never think, like, there would be big movies like Marriage Story and uh, The Irishman and things like that that are happening this year or on Netflix or, or those other sites and all that stuff. You were still, like – I was still in the more traditional format of movies in the theaters and then, you know, more network and, you know, TNT and things like that. But I wasn't thinking Hulu or Netflix or Disney Plus or I wasn't I wasn't thinking that far ahead.
0: Well, let me ask you this. At the same time, I'm just curious your thoughts on – I'm just sticking to 2010, 2011, when we're starting to get episodic movies being released in theaters. I'm talking looking at the Marvel films and things like this and and, yeah. and, the, and the trend towards sequels, prequels, and remakes. And, you know, I'm just curious – you know, did you foresee that getting as big as it got and sort of encompassing and taking over? You know, the the big you know feature film releases that are going out.
1: I mean, Marvel. I knew was going to be uh, pretty big because, uh, like I said, my younger brother Lars is a, does first he and co produces a lot of those films. So, right. So, like he he was he was in that process early on, and he had told me that this Ken Fai has this vision where it's like a whole collective universe. I felt that was going to that was going to really work because that was yeah. always the problem with those, with those films in the past. I mean, I didn't know how big it was going to be, but it's certainly as big, but I mean, it, the sequel thing isn't a new thing, right. you know, uh, it's the collected universe is, is, uh, is the new thing, you know, that, you know, DC's trying to do it. And then, and universal try is still trying to do it with the dark universe stuff where you're creating these like, you know, crossovers, uh, movies and creating a, a story universe you know and that is just smart you know that's it's something that i uh i had always hoped for on uh some of the movies i did with with uh, dean and Roland with both stargate where they actually did have uh, and still do have a that was supposed to be a three uh, three movie uh arc and then uh and on in the pen written like i wrote like 20 pages of uh alien backstory you know of the aliens because i felt they needed a backstory and uh but i got shot down on that like <laughs> by i won't say which one but <laughs> basically just said look we don't need a backstory in them they're just locusts they're coming in and they're just taking everything and then they go you know that's it that's all we need to know and i'm like yeah that could be what's in the movie but it would be great if we knew like a history because then you could create a universe like the star trek universe or star wars universe you know and create some mythology uh but it was just they always thought it was going to be a one-off that film. They're just doing War of the Worlds. That was their only interest, which I think is why the sequel didn't work. Because then they tried to do it after the fact, like that right. kind of stuff, and it, it just doesn't work like that. So, so yeah, I, I felt like you know that kind of stuff was was going to be big, but yeah, they did go a lot sequels. So it's 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 gotten harder and harder to make films that are, are original, to be honest. And it's getting better now because now. Like, we discussed there's more places to sell to. But at the time, there was like, you could, if you want to make a movie, there was like seven places, you know, the the big studios. And that's it.
0: Well, I, I do have a question for you. One more question about Marvel, since you certainly have firsthand information. How did they get it so right when the other studios are still trying to figure it out?
1: I mean, in my opinion, it's because, in essence... Well, they got a great executive who's in charge of everything, right? Kevin Feige is like it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt he knows what he's doing, right? Yeah. So, uh, and it's in essence run like a giant TV studio, you know. Like Kevin Feige's the showrunner of the Marvel TV show, you know, and these all these movies are episodes of that TV show, you know. So he sat in a room with his team of guys and Louis Esposito's head of physical production. who's a, a good friend of ours as well. Who's done a great job on that stuff. And he, they charted out, you know, like you would do for a TV show five years. Here's the plan. Like you, now you, everybody now knows it. Cause now Kevin will go to comic con and show you the plan, you know, <laughs> as part of his marketing thing. He didn't use, he didn't do that before, you know, but, uh, and also those those first couple shows like Iron Man had to hit, you know, and he took big risks and casting Robert Downey, you know, and uh, and that worked. Robert Downey was untouchable, but you know, it was like no one would cast the guy because of his previous issues, you know, like you couldn't insure him, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so they just took a big risk, and it worked out for everybody, and uh, so that created the foundation, and so that's what he does. So. That's why you'll see like not a lot of big name directors doing the Marvel films, right? They become big names later, obviously, like the Russo brothers. Uh, those guys did Community, you know, yeah. in the TV show, but they had a good take. And basically, they're like how I talked about episodic TV. A lot of the directors are like that. They are basically there uh, to capture the footage, you know, and uh, and they, the, I mean, I've seen the in the and they prep they take a lot of time in prep. Right. So, and they, they do animatics for like everything. Like there's two people sitting at a table. There's an animatic for it. Right. And, uh, and like, I remember, uh, 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 my brother Lars showed me the animatic for Iron Man three. there's like one sequence. I think it was Iron Man three where the helicopters come and they destroy, uh, uh, Tony Stark's house and they all collapse into the ocean. And, that animatic was so good you could have released that (laughs) in the theater (laughs) like the whole that whole movie was all like boarded out right like in animatics not just storyboards like and it was like you could have released as an animated film and it would have made a shit ton of money you know it was that good and when you see the movie it's shot by shot and when they go when you i've been on this uh, set a lot of those films like and uh you know, they've got those there. So the actors know what they're looking at and uh, know what they're acting against. And, and, and they just, they do those shots, especially for the big action sequences, which is fairly normal. A lot of the big action films, you, you have to break it out like that because the shots are so expensive, but, but even more so uh, Marvel extends that beyond anything else. And so, uh, you know, so then, you know, Kevin Feige knows what he's going to get. And if things start to deviate from that, uh, then there's the issues, you know, uh, but the directors are are, are are very involved in that uh, pre-visualization process like they're in there so they're doing a lot of their directing in previz, you know and then it's about going out and shooting it capturing it and uh and then finding you know some other rays of sunshine that come out of there you know because of there's human beings actors and all that stuff so anything can happen and then you know then the director will get their cut but kevin Feige will always have final cut so, so that's why you'll see like how Josh Whedon was only, you know, he was able to be there for like one or two movies, and then he had to go, you know, because it was a it was an amicable divorce because there's was just you know, a, a two alpha males like creative al- alphas butting heads, you know, like what happened with Edgar Rice on a- Edgar Wright on Ant Man, you know, like it's it's rare that a a big name director can do it. I think the only exception really is James Gunn, yeah. you know, who you know is uh, Lars is doing suicide squad with him actually right now, but you know, he's, uh, from what everybody tells you is, you know, he's got a lot of autonomy, but that's because he, uh, the uh, Kevin Feige over to his vision for gardens of the galaxy in the first place. And there's a lot of trust there and they've delivered. So, and everything was agreed on beforehand and then he's allowed to go do his, go do his thing. So, so I think that's why, I think it's why it's successful. And like, that's, you know, you know, for when you're doing a collected universe like that, I do think there has to be someone like that. And I I think that's probably been the problem with DC is they they keep uh, switching people out, you know, and they've never really had anybody fully in charge there. I think Walter Hamada is in charge there now. And I think he'll do a very good job because he's a really talented executive like that.
0: I mean, there's there's rumors that that Kevin Feige might branch out into the star wars universe have you heard that
1: i haven't heard that but uh i that could be a good call i mean yeah i mean because like listen they had a seven-year plan (laughs) there at at marvel and uh now they're 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 definitely past that you know so i remember i talked to uh an unnamed executive there's like well what do you guys do after seven years he's like i mean if, if this all works like we'll all be so rich who cares you know <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out we'll figure it. because <laughs> you know avengers endgame like was pretty like resolute you know like so uh that was they were all building up to that from the beginning that was the plan to get to that you know and then after that it's like you know a whole new thing so they're starting from scratch basically again i mean not scratch obviously there's still some of the existing characters but they have to build to a new kind of overall thing at some point in time so yeah i mean that makes sense i mean it'd be a new challenge for him i mean i'm one of the minority people i actually like the 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 last three star wars i thought i liked them i enjoyed them and i felt uh they gave me some good resolution on my childhood from 42 years ago. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. So I enjoyed them.
0: <clears throat> okay. All right. So, so let's come back to you now. So we've, you, you know, we, we, we talked about the dragon age redemption and the, 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 idea of the creative control that you can get from the independent side of filmmaking. So what is your next project beyond <laughs> that, beyond dragon age?
1: Right after that, it was like, I mean, these kind of happened all at the same time, really, I had uh, some friends, they were out in Michigan, and uh, they wanted to do a little film. I was advising them on it. There was a film called The Wicked. It was uh, my friend, uh, they raised the money, this is classic, it was all, like in the same vibe as the web series, like no money to make a movie. So they they, they had sent me a script to read, and I was just giving them advice, because like, it was my friend, he raised money from his neighborhood, and then they also got money from this uh Famous car executive, uh, I think it's not Bob Iger. Uh, God, I can't remember his name. But uh, you know, he's he's he like ran like Ford and General Motors. So they were putting up money uh, to uh, do a little film, and and my friend's wife was a costume designer. She was basically doing it so that uh, she could you know work as a costume designer. So it was like kind of a neighborhoody job, right? Uh, so they would send me a script and they would want my advice on it. But I had no really time to do that, so I gave it to my manager. Uh, and they already had a, a writer-director on the project. I gave it to my manager to read, and he read it. He uh, he called me, and he told me, hey, so I read that script. You know, my client wrote that like 10 years ago, that script. And I'm like, oh, great. So he, uh, he uh, uh, you know, found money, right? Like, good for him. And uh, he's like, yeah, the problem is his name isn't on the script. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so this guy... Some guy in Michigan uh, who had been a development executive in L.A. had gotten this. It was like a little horror movie script, and uh, uh, he just put his name on it and said he wrote it and didn't think anybody would check because my friends were newbies. They didn't know, like, you have to do a title search and, you know, make sure all that stuff is all good. So I had to call them and say, hey, listen, you guys got a problem. Like, your writer-director's committed fraud. <laughs> and so, like, that script, you don't own, you know? so they were screwed because it was like a scary house in the woods movie kind of thing and now they had no script but they had already uh they already spent the money on the location they had spent a lot of the money already you know uh so then they asked me well do you have a script that has a scary house in the woods (laughs) that you'd want to direct (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, how much money is this thing? They're like, it's $500,000 we have. And I'm like, yeah, I don't. I definitely do not. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I play hockey uh, every week and it's a lot of uh, entertainment people like uh, Jerry Bruckheimer throws a game every, every Sunday. And uh, it's like a little hockey mafia. We all go and play. So I was telling them this story. And then one of the guys, this guy named Michael Vickerman raised his hand and said, "Uh, I think I might have a script. (laughs) And uh, so he, he had this script called The Wicked. I mean, and my friends were like kind of desperate, and so I told my older brother Kim, who's also in the business. He's a he's like a big first AD. Uh, so he did like a lot of Tom Cruise films, like Edge of Tomorrow, and uh, and uh, he did the last uh, season of Westworld. And he, I mean, I like, just did a movie with Robin Wright. Uh, anyways, he's he's a bit of a legend. He's been around forever, and he's uh, he's really good. So he was like, yeah, let's. Let's go do it. I'll AD it for you. And uh, we'll bring our nephew, like Tyler. He'll be a PA. And, like, if it sucks, like, we'll just make it an Alan Smithy movie, you know. (laughs) And uh, I said, sure, let's do it. Because the script was a cool little script. Uh, about uh, you know, there's a, a legend in a small town. It's kind of a Goonies horror movie kind of thing, more than anything else. Uh, where like in your senior spring, you go camping in the woods, and there's this abandoned house where supposedly this old witch used to live back in like the Salem witch uh, trials. And because uh, we were selling it as we shot in Michigan, but it selling it as Mass- Massachusetts town. And uh, and the, the legend is you you throw a rock at the house. And if you don't hear a window break, you're going to have a great future. And if you do hear a window break, that means the witch is going to get you. And the house, all the windows are broken already. So it's like pretty safe, you know, to do it. But of course, our you know, group of kids go out there and then the window breaks and then, you know, craziness ensues. And uh, so we decided to do it. And, uh, you know, we had a really good time uh, shooting it. It was uh, absolutely challenging. But, you know, we I pull, you know, you pull a lot of favors and, you uh, Brought some young casts, a couple of young casts out of L.A., but we cast a lot locally and we had a good time of it. And, you know, the movie uh, definitely performed, especially at that budget. We, you know, we definitely made money off that film. And so, yeah, it was a good experience. And and again, you you know, you you get lifelong friends and, 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 and sometimes you discover really real talent on there. There was a there's an actress named Diana Hopper who uh, we it was our first part ever. She was like 17 or 18, and but she just had this natural talent. She had no craft at the time, but she had no fear and also just didn't give a, 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 a you know, I won't say the word. Sure. <laughs> she was like, you know, and that's exactly what the character was. like. It was one of those things like, they they had sent the cast member had sent me all these tapes and i'd been auditioning all these girls i couldn't find anybody and i said send me every single tape you've you've every single tape that's come your way and i just poured through those and i finally found this one tape of this girl who just could care less that she was there but like she did it and it was exactly it was a tomboy girl who just like you know was all about herself and like just Couldn't care less about anything, right? And so that was Samantha. I mean, Samantha does care about people, but she also just doesn't give a fuck, you know. And uh, so, so I was like, "Where's this girl?" And she's like, "Well, she actually doesn't live in Michigan. She has a Michigan address, but she's actually from Tennessee." And I was like, "Well, I got to Skype with her because she's willing to work as a local. I think I want to do her." So I just I skyped with her, and then at that point in time, she was actually in Florida on vacation with some friends of hers. So she was on a beach. She somehow had a laptop on the beach, and I Skyped with her, video chat with her, and she had been surfing or something. And, like, so she, we just had a conversation. I was like, well, listen, the part's yours. I don't know if you can act, but just be yourself, and that's it. And uh, so she came out, and she just killed it. And uh, and I remember a lot of the local cast were all coming to my brother, and i say, hey, we think we're going to come to L.A. and do, you know, do an acting career. And we were like, yeah, you know, maybe – Big fish, small pond. Maybe you should stay here for a little while. <laughs> but with Diana, we were like, you should." She didn't ask. We went to her and said, "You should come out to L.A. and we'll put you in, under the Winter Brother Protection Program, <laughs> so you don't meet the wrong people when you first come to L.A." And uh, and so, uh, and my manager immediately signed her uh, based off the film, and now she's killing it. So right now, you can she's on that show, Goliath. Uh, she played. She plays Billy Bob Thornton's daughter on Goliath, and I mean, she literally just came, you know, into L.A. and started working.
0: That's you know? incredible. So that's yeah, an incredible so story. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So again, I'm just going to go back, to sort of the, the business side of things when when we're talking about the Wicket, which mm-hmm. is a 2013 release. What do you, what are your plan? I mean, you know, this is a $500,000 film. What, what's distribution looking like when this film is done? Like, how do you, what's that process? Like? Well,
1: I mean, the, the, all these little projects along the way, they, they informed me into kind of what I'm doing now. Cause you know, I learned a lot uh, from those things. Cause again, I was coming from a studio world, so I just had no training or no knowledge of independent filmmaking and, and distribution. Like we would, we would, you know, get a script, studio would say yes to it and then we'd do it and then we'd release big into the theaters i was like my experience you know that's all i knew for 20 years you know so so i didn't know any of this stuff um so basically and also in this film i had no real my only stake in there was not that these people would get their money back you know that my friends in their neighborhood you know, would get their money back and uh at least make the film you know what I mean so that the, that they could have something to show for their efforts so that was my motivation going in but then one of our producers who came in from the other side not from the neighborhood side the guy who represent the the uh, the, the car tycoon uh, guy I'm gonna get his name before we're, sure. we're done here because he was a great dude uh, he you know he was a little shady you know he Uh, Some of the money that uh, was supposed to go to the film and end up going. We saw like bills from like Best Buy for a 56 inch TV and stuff like that. So he needed money. uh, So he basically, there was a sales company uh, called Arclight where I I knew the people there uh, just because one of my friends who had worked on Independence Day was now an executive there. So he, he had liked the film and they wanted to sell the film. And I didn't even really know what sales agents did at that time you know but i knew him and i trusted him and basically they made it you know they made a deal which now what sales agents do is you know they you don't pay them any money up front but they charge you a marketing fee uh which can be anywhere from like you know 30 to hundred thousand dollars, you know uh which gets taken out of the sales so it's not out of your pocket but it's out of your first sales and then they'll also take 10% off, off every sale after that. So they, they wanted to do about $75,000 marketing fee for that and all that. And another sales company that no longer even exists, uh, Arclight's still around. So it shows you that they're, you know, at least decent. Another uh, sales company offered him $100,000 upfront, right? And, uh, and then they would take their marketing sales fee, which means, like, that's all you're ever going to see. You're never right. going to see another dime after that. But he took that money because he needed the money. So, you know, the the Wicked didn't get the release that it, it should have had or, and, and we were planning to have, you know, uh, because we already – the pre-sale numbers that Arclight had given us were pretty strong uh, based off the film. And uh, so, so these guys, they just – you know, once they make their $100,000 back – that's all they do so they just kind of a lot of sales agents with especially with smaller budget films they'll just bundle it with a bunch of others you know and they'll they they have output deals of like companies and they just there's no real love or tender love and care in doing it they just it's a business deal they get their money back they keep the lights on because they'll do 30 40 movies whatever a year and all they need to do is make their marketing fee to keep the lights on, which pays for their tickets to the festivals, their hotels to the festivals, their their business expenses and all that. And that's the business. And that's and then every once in a while if the movie, you know, is really, really good, it, it kind of sells itself, they don't have to do that much. They just keep doing the same thing. And That's for most of the sales companies are like that, you know? So you have to find those few exceptional sales companies. Or maybe it's a new up-and-coming sales company that's hungry that's uh, that really going to invest in the film and have a plan for the film. Because otherwise, it's too easy for them just to – that's why there's so many sales companies yeah. because it's like a no-brainer business. It's like hard to lose your money, you know? So
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. And these sales companies, I mean, they just – I mean, there's what is it, like 30, 40 territories around the world and they just sell it. To all the different ter- I mean, I'm just. I'm, I don't even know how that works. <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, but. how
1: I, how it works now? Because uh, like my brother Lars and I, we, we started up our new company, uh, and uh, to do independent films. What you do now is you take a film, and you take the genre and like a certain level of cast, and you have the sales company give you uh, the worst case scenario. Like, okay, let's say I make the Telemundo soap opera version of this film. How much could you sell it for? Right. Around the world. So it's, you know, it's every country around the world. Like it's one of the great things about movie. It's a great export for us, you know? So, uh, so every country around the world will buy American films, you know, even China. So, so you basically all these, the sales companies do, they're like the middleman between you and, uh, and the, the, the distribution companies in every country. So, like, can you do that yourself? Yeah, but then, like, that you're not, have you have no life, <laughs> you yeah. know? And these yeah. people have, they do have established pipelines and, and established relationships because they go to every festival, they go to every market, and they peddle their products, you know? So, the, uh, and so, you know, so, but you can, like, you know, Germany, you can make uh, all the, you know, the big territories are, like, England, Germany, Japan, China, uh, you know, and then France, and then, you know, everything else is kind of lesser than that, but you cobble all that stuff together. And whatever that minimum guarantee is, that's what it's called that people throw out. Yeah, what's your MG on this film? That's your minimum guarantee. That's like your worst case scenario. You, the sales company feels they can sell it for that amount. So you kind of build your financial plan off of that, you know? So uh, that's like, uh, I'll just round off the numbers. If that's a $10 million film, then and that's the worst case scenario. You try to make it for $10 million because that's going to, Make it easier for you to raise the money because the investors will feel more comfortable, especially if it's an established sales company that has a track record of hitting their numbers. And also know that, like the sales companies, they're like their worst case scenario is literally like the worst case scenario because the, they have to hit those numbers because a lot of times you're raising debt financing off of that, and so they they're responsible for that if they don't hit those numbers. So so they uh, so it is uh, so that's. What you try to do now is uh, is you, you basically reverse engineer it basically.
0: When we get to you know the film that you're you're working on right now, I think I'll have a few more questions regarding that. Yeah, uh, let's get into 2015. Let's talk about painkillers.
1: Right, painkillers. That's a funny story, man. These movies. <laughs> oh, Bob Lutz was the guy who put the money up uh, the right. the other half for that. And Bob Lutz is he is a legend, like. Uh, you know, he he literally ran every car company there is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, and always they always did well off of it. So that guy, you should if you ever want to know what a great executive is, look up Bob Lutz. And uh, he's written some books about business too. He's he was kind of an amazing guy. Like the first time I met him, he owns like he owned uh he passed away now, but he owned like two uh so, a Soviet Mig jet fighter planes. I don't know what the actual terms are. So when I first met him, he. He uh, he took me out. He took me flying. The guy was like 81 when he was flying. He was a former marine, and he's doing barrel rolls and everything. I think he wanted to see if I would vomit or not. But I love roller coasters. I had the best time of my life on that thing. But but yeah, so he's a, he was an interesting cat. So uh, but yeah, paint paintkillers was it was just it was a script uh, that my agent would send me because the these uh, Canadian producers again up in Calgary uh, kept sending me the script and I kept passing on it. Because the script was terrible, like I, it just didn't call out to me. It, they were trying to do like a Manchurian Candidate thing, where it was like you know basically soldiers on a mission and they have amnesia, uh, and then you find out that they never went anywhere. That there was there was a whole brainwashing thing. It, was, it could have been a good idea, but it was just executed so poorly, and it was also very very dark which I don't respond to that. I mean, I love, uh, I love a movie like seven. Like I love that movie, but I would never make that movie. <laughs> you know, like, I don't right. want to sit in that world for that long. So, so they kept, uh, but then they, they kept uf- upping the offer to me. And, uh, and at that time I, w- I was working on another script, but I couldn't find a way into it. Like I knew it was like the opposite of what normally happens. Normally you, you know how to get into a story, and then like the second act is a problem, and like maybe how you're going to end it is a problem. But this one, I knew this whole second act, and the, and I knew exactly how it was going to end, but I didn't know how to get into it. So then I started to realize, like, oh, this script could be my way in. That could unlock the opening into this other story I want to tell. So that's so I did. I, I, I like the idea of the soldiers that went on a mission, and now they're all back, and they're in the hospital, and they're they don't remember anything that's happened to them, and uh, and that there is uh and and uh, and in my version of the story, two of them are missing, you know, and so the these these uh, the the people at the hospital are trying to to get their memories back so that they can you know go rescue or find the missing soldiers, and or find out what happened to this the package that they were supposed to get, you know, and which you don't know what the package is. So you set it up as this mystery and then you, you, you return it into something else. So I told them if they were willing to do that, I would be interested. And, uh, and they said, sure, <laughs> which that should have been my first sign, but like, well, that was a little too easy. And, uh, but, uh, so, anyways, it it's supposed to be like a three million dollar film, which I felt like okay, I, I think I could do that, especially after my now experiences with like two films under a million dollars, and uh, so we did it. So I went up to Canada and uh, to again back to Calgary, and so I used a lot of the same people that we did touch the top of the world with, and uh, so it was a fun reunion to everybody there, and. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we, we cast it up. I was a big fan of the Battlestar Galactica TV series. Uh, so I needed to cast a Canadian lead. So uh, Tom O'Pennicott, who uh, was one of the main leads on Battlestar Galactica, he's at my agency. And so we met and he had read the script and loved it and like campaigned hard. There was a couple other bigger names, not that much bigger, but, you know, bigger TV names. But like Tom was kind of just perfect for it. So I went with him and we just hit it off. And uh, so I went with him as the lead. And then uh, I, I had cast uh, uh, Leslie Ann Brandt in it. I had worked with Leslie Ann on a movie I produced for Joel David Moore, who is an actor, director, friend of mine uh, with Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Danny Glover that ended up not getting released because the financier was so corrupt, right? And uh, he didn't pay a lot of his bills. And so if you ever released the film – uh, he would have to, he would get sued. So he just, he's put it on, it's still on the shelf I and mean, it's a really good movie called killing Winston Jones. Uh, but I, uh, so I met her on that. So she came up and played a great character. But the crazy thing about that movie is again, a great learning experience for independent film and, and why my brother and I are doing what we're doing now, where we, we have our own money is like independent film investors are just not reliable <laughs> you know they're just not reliable so you know it got to we got up there and prep and suddenly we realized like they didn't have three million dollars <laughs> like they had like one million dollars you know but they didn't let us know we were like a week into shooting and that then we had this big meeting i was like what's the meeting about And they basically told us that you know and so that's like a huge change <laughs> but we're all up there now and i'm sure this is why they do it. We're all invested in it and because uh, we had just been up in uh, the Badlands of Alberta shooting there's this Afghan uh, battle sequence, like uh, Afghan war battles, because like, we always constantly flashback to what happened. And every time you flashback, you learn something new kind of thing. Right. And uh, so, so we kind of got together and figured out how we were going to do it. But it was just constant constant struggles like that where you know there's a scene where they come into this they go into this cave and down the cave they find the the, what the package is and it was supposed to be like kind of an octagon shaped room and they're like we'll never be able to pay for all that and i'm like we don't need to build the whole, you just need to build half of it you know what i mean i only i don't need to build the whole thing you know and uh and then like you know i came there the night before i was supposed to shoot that scene the next day and there's one wall you know, and there's supposed to be like a gunfight happen between like eight people in this room. Right. And uh, I got one wall and all that stuff. So, you know, you learn it's, it's, those movies. It's good. You you learn like through, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So like we had a cave set. So I, like we literally me and the, the art director, we took chainsaws and we, we had already shot the cave So we carved out some of that stuff and we kind of built our own set like all night long, you know. So I had at least some leeway and then, you know, when you have no set, you basically, there's only one thing you can do, which is turn out the lights, you know, (laughs) it's like, so we made it kind of a surrealistic gunfight where the lights go out and then we just use like muzzle flashes from the guns and, and then like the lights come on and you see who survived, you
0: know (laughs) know what
1: I mean? And, uh, which isn't the ideal way to go, but it, it worked, you know, it worked, but, uh, and again, it was a similar thing to The Wicked, where the producer just didn't have enough money, so he took again a deal from a sales agent where he got money up front, you know, and uh, to help pay some of some of the bills that he had uh, because he had a lot of uh, people clamoring for debts, and he was as opposed to uh, uh, the other producer this was he's a canadian so he's a nice guy <laughs> he just got in he got in over his head you know that's all and he wasn't a crook like the other guy but uh he got in over his head and didn't really fully realize all the the hidden expenses that come with filmmaking and uh so he got caught uh, behind the ball and uh so he uh, he had to do what he had to do but you know so the movie you know gets buried and so you hope people find it but it, it never gets it chance really so uh but again every film i've been lucky so far like especially with cast and 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 crew obviously like the dp uh, uh kamal and i are still really good friends in constant contact leslie ann brandt's become one of my greatest friends uh now she's on the show lucifer uh yeah. and she plays Maze on that and Tom and I are still great friends Tom works all the time uh Julia Voth who was in it also uh very close friends I was at her wedding last year so uh, i mean for me that's part of the filmmaking uh, besides telling the stories it's the uh relationships that uh that you create that last a lifetime you know so that's uh, that's like uh, priceless you can't get you know and that's just all because you're you're, you know people all going for a common uh, common goal and uh, and for me like I told you the last time with that Mel Gibson story with the cotton fields like I'm very collaborative like I'm still uh, you know running the show in, in essence but you you let people be very proactive instead of reactive and so it, it just helps everybody's involved you know and everybody's going for it whether whatever the budget is you're you're gonna take a shot. And, see, and then you'll see where it goes and uh, but all those movies besides like learning new film filmmaking tricks that you discover on every film uh, I learned a lot about uh, how I wanted to create a, a company and have control over how a film gets released because you do all that work and then like uh, nobody gets to see the film because of in essence bad producing Uh, cause I was just directing those films. I don't know if I get a producer credit on any of those things, but, uh, I can't remember it, but I only directed those things. And so you had no control, however, it gets released. And that's just uh, a shame because people, uh, both cast and crew, you, you pour your heart and soul into it. So you want to make sure after those films, I wanted to make sure I was in a situation where if I'm not in control of it, like I trust the people that are in control of that. And I want to know what their plan is where before I didn't really think about that because I never had to, you know? so
0: after painkillers you know you've had a couple really interesting experiences with the last two films you've been a director on directing is what you want to do but you you get into other things you you get back into producing can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i did and a lot of it was in response to that like i i would get offered a lot of similar type projects as a director and it just you know wasn't worth it to me because uh you know of where it was gonna go so because again like with painkillers and the wicked nobody says oh that movie was badly produced that's why nobody saw it you know what i mean so people who saw it all like the film but nobody got a chance to see it so uh, in like a widespread manner so so i just didn't it's 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 too as much as i love directing it's, it's 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 too much hard work for for people for not to get out there you know you at least want it to get out there to a certain degree and not just end up on like itunes or whatever and and being bundled with other films that's like that's too heartbreaking for me you know so and i'm biased i don't think those movies really deserve that fate i I feel they deserve a bigger fate and over time like they do do well just takes a lot of time you know both those movies end up uh, doing well for for what they were but but it just it's a long period of time because people have to just simply discover it on their own accidentally you know kind of thing uh so so yeah so i went into more producing because i had a lot i have a lot of friends who are i kind of started making a little cottage industry of uh because i'm a producer but i was trained to be a producer by a director you know and and uh and then i've directed so i have insight into the pain and agony a director goes through. So I had a lot of friends reach out to me for that. Like uh, I did a movie called Sister, or David Lasher, who's an actor friend of mine, uh, directed and wrote it. So, you know, I, I take a lot of joy in, in providing a uh, an atmosphere that people can thrive in creatively and then we can handle all the rest, you know. And uh, so and have a director just direct because uh, those two experience with me as a director, I had to solve a lot of other issues you know what i mean including finding more on um, paint covers. i had to find my brother lars and i had to find some more money and that's why lars has a producer credit on it to kind of just get through it you know so so i just didn't want that for any of my other friends who were directing so that's kind of where i started to go for a little while and that's where sister and killing winston jones came from and then and then i was slowly kind of coming up with this plan of uh starting our own company where we could make movies that we want to tell and uh, take a little bit more control of our destiny of like where we are in the world because like my brother lars is in atlanta like half the year you know so he misses his kids football (laughs) baseball games and like his daughter's recitals and things like that he tries to fly back every weekend so at least we'd have more control of where we go and when and also the type of stories we could tell and then also how we would release it you know so so that's kind of where all that uh came through and then And then, uh, so all those, all the movies I produced were all for, uh, outside of Wakefield. We're all for fairly inexperienced directors where you can help walk them, walk them through some stuff and, 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 you know, help teach them how to prepare. Cause that's preparation is the most important of it all. And then help them, uh, realize their story as best you can. So that's, uh, been a lot of,
0: a lot of fun to do. So Peter, before we wrap things up, Let's just remind the listeners what you're working on right now.
1: Right. So the film I'm working on right now, it's, it's, uh, it's the first movie out of our uh, company, appropriately called Winter Brothers. That's my brother Lars and I formed, where uh, uh, we partnered up with an equity uh, fund where we provide uh, half the budget through equity. And then the rest we have through debt through a, a sales company called uh, Motion Picture Exchange which is a new company, uh, but it's run by a good friend of mine who used to work at IM Global, and, uh, and he also used to work for Bonnie Curtis, uh, who was uh, Spielberg's producer for a while, and now she's uh, over at uh, Village Roadshow. So, you know, someone I trust. So they gave us, you know, the minimum guarantee numbers, and so we kind of made the movie for that price, which is about 1.4, mm-hmm. right? And so it stars Ashley Green, uh, from the Twilight films. And uh, Sean Ashmore, who was in the X-Men films, played Iceman, and he's done. It, he was in the sh- TV show The Following, also a Canadian. And it's a story, there are a couple that uh, truly love each other, but they they have some issues because there was an infidelity in the past. So they're trying to find a way past that. So they're going to therapy, doing all that kind of stuff. And so the therapist says maybe one of the things they could do is Give themselves the gift of a new environment because the husband's having trouble having sex with his wife because she was the one who cheated on him and, uh, and they did it in their house, right, where they live now. So every time he tries to have sex, he just thinks of that guy, you know, in their bed. And you learn that through this film that, like, it's a two-way street because the, the reason why she cheated was because he kind of shut himself off emotionally to her. And she tried for years to kind of break through that. And then one night, you know, she found solace in somebody else's arms and realized it was a mistake and sort of trying to figure that out. The beginning of the movie, it starts with a, a 911 call where you basically hear a, a murder-suicide happen. And then our guy, uh, uh, Sean Ashmore's character, he's the crime, he's the crime scene cleanup guy. And he cleans that up. And that's where you first meet him. And then you learn this whole backstory about their relationship. So that's what gives them the idea. Hey, I think I can get a great deal on this house, which is like a $2 million house. They're living in like a three hundred, four dollars $400,000 house. They're crammed in there together. So he pitches his wife that he thinks he can get a great deal for that house. And like maybe this gift of a new environment could be for them. And she's like, are you crazy? Like, the husband killed the wife, like after our problems. What are you trying to tell me? And, like, he's like, listen, yeah, that's not great. But, like, they're the only people that ever lived in this house. Like, the wife built this house from scratch. No one else has ever lived in the house. Think of any other house you move into, even in like a place like Los Angeles. There's at least 50 years or more of history there. You don't know what happened. They only have to tell you what just happened, right? So there could – any other house, there could be pedophilia. There could be Indian burial grounds (laughs) underneath them. There could be satanic cults. You just don't know. Like if there's ghosts in this house, at least we know the ghosts, right? And any horror movie, like once you know the ghosts, like you win, right? So, (laughs) That's right. and And I'd rather deal with those ghosts than the ghosts of that guy having sex with you in my bed. Right. So eventually she decides. So they move in the house. Everything starts you know, going great. And then slowly but surely things start to go a little bit crazy. And you don't know if it's like all in her mind because she has a history of mental illness or if it's something supernatural or is it someone from the outside messing with them? Or is the husband doing something? You just don't know. There's a whole cast of suspects, including the guy who you know, she used to have the affair. She had the affair with, so you really don't know. So it's kind of set up as like a classic haunted house film, but it it uh, it. Um, it kind of uh, goes away from that uh, quickly. So it's a uh, you know it's a it's a movie about trust. It's about uh, trust and relationships, not just the romantic ones, but all the platonic ones. That's the theme that resonates throughout. And what we're trying to do is do an elevated you know genre film. It's more a psychological thriller than horror. You know, kind of like you know what Jordan Peele did in Get Out. You know what uh, what they did in Parasite, where uh, you know where you're talking about something else. Like, really, the thrills and chills are just a metaphor for something else. In our case, like in Parasite, it's about the hierarchy of society. And Get Out is about racism. Our movie, it's about trust in a relationship. And that, like, at some point in time, if you truly love someone, you just have to believe in them. Even when all the evidence is to the contrary. So, that's what we're doing. And, and where we're at with that right now, actually, is on on we're in post-production. So, the, the cut's locked. So, um, on Tuesday... Uh, we're recording the, the orchestra, so I pulled a lot of favors on this film. We shot in L.A., so uh, Lars, uh, who's producing with me, he uh, he uh, he was able to secure a lot of the Captain Marvel crew because that shot in Los Angeles. And so, even though we're a, a smaller budget film, a lot we got a lot of that crew because they could all go home at night and like and kiss their kids goodnight, you know, to, you know, before they go to bed and all that. And then, and then actually Lucifer, that TV show, the DP and the grip and electric crew were all from Lucifer because it was a perfect timing for that. So we were able to kind of use a, a lot of those, you know, we had a real veteran crew, let's put it that way, that you would never get on a budget this size. And, uh, so now we, uh, uh that continues in post. So we have like, we were able to secure like 110 piece orchestra, uh, yes. <laughs> to play the music. So that's happening on Tuesday, so we're very excited for that. Because again, normally, on this budget, you're like, you have a synthesized score, you know? Pretty much, you know? So here, we're going to have, like, 40 violins and, like, uh, uh, a huge brass section, and, and the, the music, Sasha Shaban wrote that, and Sasha, like, he's, he's a big-time orchestrator, like, he did the Gardens of the Galaxy movies as an orchestrator, and then, uh, so, but he's trying to make a name for himself as a composer, so and that's what we did throughout the film where while we do have a lot of the veteran talent we also have like what lo- we feel some talented up-and-comers right. and so you mix that all those veterans with young talent and you have a nice uh, dynamic there you know so we're doing that and then uh, we do the final mix end of january so uh, it's doing really well we've already pre-sold some territories just based we did a Again, the there's a company called Hurwitz Creative, which does all the EPKs for the Marvel films, and they came in as a favor and did like uh, like you know, overall over the course of the film, they came to our, our our set probably seven seven of the twenty days that we shot, and you know did interviews with the cast, and so they cut something together. So based off just the EPK and the script, we've already sold territories, but we've we've also tested the film three times, and uh, our lowest score was an eighty-five. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So we've been between 85 and 92 on the three different tests. And then also I've done a lot of like couch testing, you know, where you go to a friend's house and they watch on their TV on a couch and see how that works. So it's everything's working. So, you know, fingers crossed, we don't screw it up, but uh, our investors are very happy about it. So what we're now doing is with our investors, we're setting up a little bit of a bigger fund. Like this was a film, like a one-off film just so our investors can kind of see how all the mechanics work, you know, right. and uh, firsthand, because I told them, like, I can tell you how it works, but it's always different every time, <laughs> you know, like there's like 80% of it will happen like this, but there's going to be 20%. Like, I just can't tell you it could, could be anything, anything could happen. So, so they've seen that uh, in effect and, uh, and they're still, into it and so we're now setting up a fund where we can do three movies in a slate where we can do another movie like this size we can do a 10 million dollar film and we can do like a three million dollar film where we'll put up half the money in equity and maybe more depending you know because sometimes on a little 1.5 million dollar film it almost is better to do it all equity to be honest so but so that's where we're at so this movie is really important for us because it, it has you know we really need it to work uh but so far so good i think uh, uh their expectations of what they're going to sell for because we're selling for above our ass price so everyone thinks they're everyone feels very comfortable about the position they're in, uh, financially. So well,
0: that's outstanding. And, and please, yeah. please keep me updated on this. I will keep everyone. I'll keep all the listeners updated because I'm, I'm really excited to see this film when it comes out. And it's, uh, yeah. it's just been a, um, it's just been awesome hearing your story. I, I look forward to, to talking to you in the future, Peter. Like it's just, it's, it's so exciting just to listen to everything you've, everything you've done, everything you've accomplished and everything you're going to accomplish. So, so thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Well, I thanks. Thanks, Dana. It was a pleasure to meet you. And then uh, hopefully we'll, I'll see you when you come to LA.
0: Absolutely. So my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.